So, day two of our mission on the Lord's Passion, or the Eucharist, the Sacrament of the Lord's Passion. Last night, I said a few words about giving thanks to our Lord for this great gift of the Eucharist. And tonight, I'd like to spend a few moments with all of you reflecting on the words of institution of the Eucharist. It was through these words of institution that Jesus spoke on the night of Holy Thursday that produced what St. Thomas Aquinas called the greatest of all of Jesus' miracles, the greatest. That might seem like a bit of a paradox since we know that probably, at least for me, the greatest would have been seeing him risen from the dead. And somehow St. Thomas Aquinas says this, the Eucharist is the greatest of all his miracles. Or maybe it was being cured of blindness or leprosy or deafness or uh, any of the things you can imagine that Jesus or that the Gospels report that Jesus did, yet this is the high point. And this miracle, again, came through the simplest of human actions, the human voice, these words. And how often we maybe would love to have Jesus show us something visible. Of course, in the history of the church, we do have some Eucharistic miracles where uh, throughout the history of the church, Usually at the celebration of the Mass, at certain times, the priest has maybe doubted, like Orvieto, the priest celebrating Mass, doubted that it was truly the body and blood of Christ, and uh, the host, we know, turned into blood, or at least parts of the host turned into blood. And I think other Eucharistic miracles, they actually analyze samples of the, the host that purportedly turned into Uh, Jesus' body and blood, and I think many of these miracles really do, in a certain sense, we don't want to say prove because it's an article of faith necessarily, we can't prove it scientifically, but these samples that have been analyzed show human blood with white blood cells, which usually means that the person, whoever's blood this was, was undergoing severe trauma, and it's always uh, cells from the heart. So many of these Eucharistic miracles, you can Google that. It's funny, I remember when I was working up at uh, our school up in Michigan, one of the legionary schools in Michigan, uh, or the only school in Michigan, one of our, our schools, Everest Academy, uh, we had every year a group of boarding students that would come, a new group of about 30 boarding students. And since they lived on campus, they would always acolyte the, the weekday masses. And I remember... Uh, I can't remember the maybe three or four years into my tenure there, I started on every Thursday morning whenever I had the Thursday morning Mass, I would preach on a Eucharistic miracle. I did that for two or three years. And one time, uh, I remember after a, a Thursday Mass, after preaching about a Eucharistic miracle, I went back into the sacristy and I opened up the Roman Missal. So the Roman Missal is the big uh, book on the altar that the priest reads from uh, when he's celebrating Mass. And literally, there was a drop of what looked like blood on the, one of the pages of the second Eucharistic prayer, which I had used that day. And I was thinking, uh-oh, no, this can't be. There's, there's no way. This can, can't possibly be a Eucharistic miracle. I've been preaching about it for years. But it really, dude, you can tell what's, somebody, what's paint or something else. It was literally a drop of blood. That I, I pretty much knew. Uh, I remember that day one of our religion teachers had been at Mass, and I, I asked her, did you see anything happen after Mass? or did you know?" Because I, I thought the book was closed, and, the, and the, the boys took it back to the sacristy, and I didn't see anything strange happen. 
Um, she said, no, I didn't see anything. But then I showed her the book, and you could tell it was literally a drop of blood. Uh, and then the two altar servers, I asked one of them, and he said, I have no idea what happened. Of course, the second one, after my hopes were getting up that something really miraculous might have happened, the second one said, yeah, when I went back to the sacristy, my nose started bleeding and had a little drop of blood. <laughs> so it was no Eucharistic miracle. However, that does mean that uh, just wasn't our time to have a Eucharistic miracle there. But Christ really does want us to step out in faith, even if he doesn't prove it necessarily. So we do step out in faith. And again, the greatest of these miracles happen through Jesus' words. As a kind of a beginning, I wanted to reflect briefly on the value of silence, because that's one of the most precious times at the Mass is during the consecration. There's total silence. And that sacred silence is the farthest thing from emptiness. In fact, it's the fullness because I believe if we were to try to enunciate what's happening at the moment of consecration after the priest says those words, how could we possibly have words to fill the reality of what exists there? It's like St. Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And that having been prepared for what God has prepared for those who love him happens every day that we celebrate Mass so we really can't say words there. Maybe that's the church's indirect way of saying, don't even attempt to, to speak words right now because any word you speak will fall short of the mystery, fall short of the reality that is present here in the Eucharist. So we, uh, it's really we can speak words from the heart. Words really can't describe the majesty of what is taking place. So we do have to ask every time we're at Mass, ask the Holy Spirit to help us fill that sacred silence with the joy, the reality that Christ has come to us, that God is visiting his people in that moment in a very special way. And here in adoration, he is visiting us in a very special way, right here and right in this moment. So we need that gift of silence, not an empty silence, but a silence that helps to fill our hearts with the joy of Christ's love. One of those the reason I think about silence, I remember being in kindergarten. So I grew up in Raleigh. All of my siblings, or five of us, we all were born at Rex Hospital. But there was a period of four years where we moved down to Charlotte from 1972 to 1976. And I know this happened in a church in Charlotte because I was in kindergarten. And I didn't start first grade until I got back here to Raleigh. Went to Cathedral Elementary. But I remember being in no later than kindergarten. And I believe it was at a church called St. Peter's Church there in Charlotte, North Carolina. And all I remember is kneeling. I was in a pew, and I was kneeling down, and I remember my dad being to the left of me. And I didn't hear anything else going on that I can remember. But for whatever reason, I looked up to my left, my dad, and it, sound, it looked like his lips were moving. And as I reflect on it more and more, I believe it must have been the moment of the words of consecration. That somehow, my father was lip-syncing, if you will. He was saying the words of consecration with the priest. I don't know that. I never asked him because it really didn't at that moment occur to me, and then I, I forgot about it. But the more I reflected on that, that silence, I do know that at that moment, the church was silent, and nothing was coming out of his mouth either. It's always been, as I continue to ponder my vocation, some of those moments that God just little... Uh, drops of grace that God gives you to see my dad with his lips moving. I mentioned yesterday this active participation in the Mass. What active participation in the Mass is all about is the, the 
members of the church that are in the church at that moment are really uniting themselves to the words of the Eucharistic prayer especially. And so that's what my dad was doing. And so it left a deep impression on me. I think it's an invitation for uh, all of us, of course, but especially dads and young men and men. Uh, the example we can give by a life of piety is incredible. Maybe St. John Paul II comes to mind. His own father, we know, was a model of prayer for, for John Paul II. And to, for John Paul II to see his dad on his knees in prayer left a profound impact. And partly made John Paul II, uh, that example, made him what he was as a young man and a man, of course, in this great saint and great pope. So that precious gift of silence. One of the benefits of silence is that it allows us to hear and we not, might not necessarily hear audible words, uh, but one thing it allows us to hear is the voice of Christ, especially through his church. Today we celebrate the, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, and that's been celebrated since the 300s in Rome. And it celebrates the fact that the church was built on Peter, on Peter's profession of faith. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do the Son of Man, or who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said all different things, and then Peter stepped up and said, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. So we celebrate that gift of faith that St. Peter had that we build our faith upon. And it's that same faith, that's one of the reasons we believe in these words of institution, is because those first leaders of the church said, I believe. And I will even stake my life for those words that Jesus said and for all the words and teachings that Jesus did. So when we have that silence and listen to the voice of the Lord, one of the ways we hear him is through uh, not only the Pope, but the official teachings of the church. I've personally always found, especially the the documents of a council of the church, very uh, profound. Sometimes they're a little bit difficult to read, but... I, I get the sense that the Holy Spirit was really whispering into the minds and the hearts of the fathers of the church. Uh, most recently, of course, recently is 50 years, 60 years ago, Second Vatican Council. But those two, if you read those documents, again, the actual documents of Vatican II, you can really hear the Holy Spirit. Um, and faith is, faith is very important, and, and listening to the words of faith are important because what we believe in faith is not a human invention. That's the big difference between, let's say, a, a philosophical system and belief, as Christians know it, is that a philosophical system is something that a man or a woman develops in their own mind. They have maybe some clever insights about the way the world works or even their thoughts about God, but it's always an interior. It's a process that goes on inside the mind and the heart of man. Christian revelation is the exact opposite. We believe in everything that Jesus said, not because we thought about it first and then we gave it to others. Giving to others is always a reflex, it's a reaction to something that we've been given as a gift, especially when we talk about these words of institution. These things came from the outside. Obviously, the way they came was from the heart of God himself and Jesus. But that, that's what makes faith different. We receive a gift. We don't think about it in our mind and then give it. We receive it as a gift, and part of that reception comes through the documents of the church. So our faith has been transmitted by this most ordinary means, the human voice. St. Peter himself said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
Though he himself and the other apostles, he's speaking, of course, in this particular passage about the transfiguration, but Peter received himself this gift of the teaching or the reality of the Eucharist. So again, faith doesn't come from what we think about ourselves. Faith comes from the outside, what we hear and what the apostles saw so they could transmit it to us. So this message of salvation, particularly the salvation that comes from the Eucharist, is, has come to us from the outside. God's revealing it to us. So I wanted to mention uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. That was the document about the sacred liturgy from the Second Vatican Council. It says very simply on the following. At the Last Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. I think uh, one important phrase is on the night he was betrayed. Of course, the Second Vatican Council is giving us the words of, of the scripture. But of all the words, I thought about why would it possibly, maybe using that, that paragraph, on the night when he was betrayed. Of course, it's scriptural, but they could have left that part out. I think it's betrayed because the church is reminding us that betrayal first had to have a friendship. You can only really truly betray someone if you first had a friendship with them. And Judas did. He must have had a friendship with Christ. But unfortunately, he betrayed him. So even as we are in the presence of Christ and we want to grow in our friendship, we have to ask ourselves, and Christ's presence is the greatest place to do it, where have I betrayed you, Lord? Because we want to take those things away. We want to ask for the obstacles to be, to be removed so that we can continue being a friend of Christ. So as the Holy Council said at the Last Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. And then the why. Why did he do this? It continues, he did this, one, in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries until he should come again. And secondly, so to, so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is eaten. The mind is filled with grace and a pledge of future glory is given to us. A quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. We know that Christ didn't live any personally written documents. We have the testimony of the apostles, the gospels and the letters of, of Paul, of, of St. Peter, of John, of Jude, but we don't have any written words of Jesus Christ. And of course, probably one of the reasons Jesus purposely did not leave any written record is because written records can sometimes be relegated to the past. We read them, we contemplate them, and then, okay, well, that's, that happened in the past. We don't really, doesn't, doesn't bring it to the future. And perhaps one of the reasons Jesus didn't write any history of himself was because he didn't want that gift of the Eucharist to remain in the past. He wanted it to be a living memorial. As the church states, he entrusted this gift to his beloved spouse, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity. So through the sacred words of institution, he's left us the Eucharist. He didn't need to write a book because it was never intended. The Eucharist was never intended to stay in the past. He meant it to be a living gift, a gift that we could have, celebrate, worship throughout the history of the church as we do today. So we have to really ponder and give thanks that we listen to the voice 
of the church and, and the, her sacred documents uh, and the teachings of the fathers of the church. Uh, and then especially the, these documents where the church, listening to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit, give us true doctrine, true things that guide our minds and our hearts. So these sacred words of institution are very important. Um, if you've heard me more than, preach more than once or twice, you know that uh, I find particular inspiration in Pope Benedict, so I'm not going to veer from the course. I'm sorry. Pretty predictable in that, re- in that respect. But regarding the words of the institution of the Eucharist, uh, there's, there are various, I think, three or four interview books that Pope Benedict gave with during his, both when he was Cardinal Ratzinger and also when he was Pope. When he was Pope. One of them is called God and the World. And he says the following. He says, if you want to get to know Christ, you can get to know him best by meditating on these words, meaning on, by meditating on the words of the institution of the Eucharist. Listen to that phrase. If you want to get to know Christ the best. So certainly all scriptures lead us to Jesus. But if you want to know him the best, we reflect on the words of institution of the Eucharist. As, we, as I look back, uh, just the, the sacred uh, reality of these words, I remember being, I think I was in second grade. I might have just done my first communion. I don't remember. One of the nice habits that my mom and dad did growing up was they invited our parish priest over for dinner. Uh, Monsignor Ingham was one of those uh, very welcome guests in our home. But before I, I met Father Ingham, there was a Father Stanford, I believe was a pastor, one of the associate pastors at Sacred Heart Cathedral in the late 70s. And I just remember we invited him over, or my parents invited him over. And at one of the meals, I just remember he was sitting across from the table, and I just remember him speaking about the moment of consecration of the Eucharist, believe it or not. And I remember him kind of lifting up his hand and saying, that moment, it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of faith. And as a second grader, again, I don't think I was any more than second grade, maybe third, but I just remember that was stuck in my mind and my heart that kind of a mystery. He's the priest I see up there every Sunday, but there's also, it's not like a magic thing. He, he too, this priest, he's not some, again, reflecting on it later, not some, he's not having visions, he's not having mystical uh, experiences of the body and blood of our Lord, but he himself, the priest, has to have faith. Um, so it really uh, struck a chord with me. So these words of institution are something that we receive, um, but we always can get to know him better by reflecting on these words. So I imagine uh, Father Sanford at that time was also getting to know better, as we all do, have to get to know Jesus better. And what better way to do that than reflecting on the words we celebrate during Mass? So, of course, we can take St. Matthew's words of the institution. While they were eating, Jesus took bread said the blessing, broke it, and giving it to his disciples said, Take and eat, this is my body. St. John Paul II wrote an encyclical in 2003 on the Eucharist. And he has a very interesting question at the, at the, towards the beginning of the document. Uh, he asked the following question. He says, Did the apostles who took part in the Last Supper understand the meaning of the words spoken by Christ? Perhaps not. Those words would only fully be clear at the end of the sacred triduum, meaning at the end of Easter Sunday. So at the very moment, kind of reflecting on what Father Sanford at at our dinner table was saying about the words of institution, even the the first priest there, after they had 
or you know, during, the, if you will, their ordination, they're holding up the body, uh, or witnessing Jesus give us his body, uh, and then the Pope was reflecting, and maybe at that specific moment, they didn't understand exactly what he was saying. But we, in a certain sense, have a privilege of having the church live now for 2,000 years with this great gift, and we can ponder it more even in a certain sense, have a better understanding at Mass of the Eucharist than the first apostles did when they were at the first Mass. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think about. Uh, It's a great gift. We're in a privileged position. Jesus did say earlier at the Last Supper, uh, according to St. John and his account, Jesus did this freely. Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. Of course, at that moment, Jesus was talking about the resurrection. He knew he was going to die, uh, and he was going to take his body up again at the resurrection. So he knew that, but the apostles didn't. It's a, and the Eucharist is a mystery we have to ponder and, and, and ask God for the grace to go deeper in a certain sense every single day. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. There was uh, a plan in Christ's heart. That whole idea of Jesus knowing that he's going to die, I remember the first time I read the second volume of Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict, That just that one phrase, Jesus knew that he was about to die. Can you imagine? None of us uh, really want to plan our own death, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew he was about to die. So I think any one of us, if we knew that we were going to die the next day or die in a certain amount of time, we would do very important things before we died. And so these words of institution must have been the most important thing that Jesus could have possibly left us because he knew he was going to die. So what a a flood of thoughts and emotions must have passed through Jesus' mind and heart. I think self-dominion, one of those, he just said, I, I, lay, I lay down my life freely. No one's going to take it from me. So in those moments, Jesus had self-dominion, certainly sorrow, but determination, self-sacrifice, firm acceptance of suffering, yet, of course, deep joy that he were, would remain present with us for all eternity. So I think every time we approach the Eucharist, isn't Christ asking us to share in the, in the sentiments even of his own sacred heart? When we approach communion, that, that self-dominion, we come here freely. Sorrow, Jesus didn't have sorrow for our sins, but we can have sorrow for our sins uh, as we approach. And then determination that we're going to do better. The idea of self-sacrifice, firm acceptance of suffering, suffering and that, that deep joy that Christ is not only with me now, but he will be for all eternity. So reflecting on death makes us wiser, and it also helps us to purify our hearts, to filter out what is unimportant in life. So if Jesus, at the Last Supper, knowing that he was going to die the next day, he could have said anything. He could have done anything. But what he actually said and did is the most profound mystery of his earthly life. Again, it's connected with the Passion, which, of course, we'll reflect on tomorrow. It's one event in a certain sense. So what better time to get an insight into someone's heart than the moment of their death? Because, as Jesus himself said, from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus' words of institution were literally the expression of the fullness of his heart. 
that he left nothing out. He left everything, uh, turned everything over to us. So as we reflect on now on the words of the institution of the precious blood, we can ask, where did Jesus' heart go at the moment of the institution of the wine, or the institution of his blood in the wine in the new covenant? His words reveal his heart. So let's listen to the words of consecration. I'll take one from St. Matthew's Gospel and then the second from St. Luke's, the institution of the precious blood. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. So what covenant? So remember that Jesus, of course, is God, and he's doing something at the Last Supper that is the fullness of what his mission was to accomplish on this earth, expressing it in words. Well, if we know what covenant, there's actually two parts to the covenant that Jesus is talking about on the night of the Last Supper. The first comes from Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. It says the following, Then, having sent certain young men of the Israelites to offer a holocaust and sacrifice young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord, Moses took half of the blood and put it in large bowls. The other half he splashed on the altar. Taking the book of the covenant, he read it aloud to the people who answered, All that the Lord has said we will heed and do. Then he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. So we can see that there's two parts of the covenant. There's the the blood of the sacrificed animals that was filled in bowls, and then it was splashed, splashed on the altar. And the altar, of course, represented God. That was in Exodus. When they finally were able to construct the temple, uh, and they constructed according to the pattern of God, and they, they had, when they were able to do sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, they did the same ritual as prescribed by Moses, and they would splash the blood on the altar because the, the altar represented God. The belief was that when that blood touched God, the blood was purified because God overpowers it with his goodness, his purity, his love. So that blood of the animal was splashed on the altar, and through that blood, the Israelites received forgiveness of their sins. We know that was the, the, feet, the Day of Atonement. It was a one time a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the altar, the Holy of Holies, with the blood. The blood purified by God's presence, then would symbolically, they could only hope, because what else would it be with an act of faith in the Israelites if that blood splashed on the altar would purify all the sins of the people for that year? That's the first part of the covenant that Jesus is talking about. And then it speaks about the book of the covenant. And a covenant is a relationship. Now, we know that relationships, our human relationships, are broken. And if we read the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. Even though they said the following words. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. And they said, the Israelites said, all that the Lord has said, we will heed and do. And then not too long after that, what happens? Moses goes up on the mountain, and as he's up on the mountain, they get tired of waiting, and they say, we don't know what happened to this Moses. So they ask Aaron to to make a golden calf for them. 
Not too long after they just said, we're going to do everything that God tells us to do. We're going to do everything. And then they go and worship the golden calf. Of course, it's easy to look back and say, how could they possibly do that? But it happens to us all the time. Every time we commit a sin, we're doing the same thing. We're telling the Lord, I believe in you. I hope in you. I love you. I'm going to do everything you want me to do. And then we sin. So we, have, we can really uh, feel for the Israelite people who say one thing and then do another. But that's where this great gift of the Eucharist comes in. He gives us something more powerful than the blood of animal sacrifice or anything like that. Again, they say, all the Lord has said we will heed and do. And they make the golden calf. Human promises are so fragile. How many times they broke their promises. So that was the first part of the covenant. So what does God do? Whenever we break our promise, God's always faithful. He doesn't break his. In fact, he reaches out and gives us even more opportunity to come back to him again. So now let's turn to the words of institution um, from St. Luke. And what Pope Benedict talks about is that certainly that the, there are different nuances in the different, if you read St. Luke, he has a couple different new words that we're talking about here, like the new covenant, um, but it, that faithfully transmit what the Lord said and did at the Last Supper. So the first part in, Ma- in Matthew's gospel talks about the covenant. We just read about Moses' covenant in the blood. That's what Jesus was talking about. But then we know the Israelites failed. They, they went back. They betrayed Jesus, betrayed God, excuse me. Jesus in the flesh hadn't come yet. He was there in the word, but not in the flesh. Um, so God does another thing. Then in Jeremiah, he says, the days are coming through the prophet Jeremiah. The Lord speaks to us. The days are coming, says the Lord, well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And St. Luke's gospel says, in terms of the institution of the Eucharist, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be shed for you. So again, what does God do when we break our promises to him? Does he condemn us? Absolutely not. He invents new ways to reach out to us. So they broke the covenant in the desert. Well, God said, that's okay. I'm going to make a new covenant. This new covenant, of course, is the gift of the Holy Spirit that the law is no longer written on stone tablets. The law is written in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the new covenant, that's one of the nuances of, of, of Luke's transmission of the words of institution, is that Jesus encompasses, in a certain sense, both covenants. It is the old covenant of Moses, but in fulfillment. And it's the new covenant because God promised uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, that there would be a new covenant for the house of Israel. So don't you see, we can very clearly see Moses, Jeremiah, and then the words of many. Because he surrendered himself to death, this is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, because he surrendered himself to death and was counted among the wicked, and he shall take away the sins of many. So again, going back to Luke's transmission of the words of institution, he says, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And in Matthew's, I'm sorry, in Matthew's, he says, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus not only brings in the prophet Moses, he not only brings in the prophet Jeremiah, he also brings in the prophet Isaiah when he says, for many. So we can see in the words of institution, especially of the precious blood, the law and the prophets. 
Moses, the law, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the prophets. So what we believe and what we witness through the the testimony of the church is that the Last Supper was a carefully crafted act of supreme love that Jesus really gave hints of for centuries with his chosen people. He knew all along from the very time, of course, from time immemorial, but in a very specific way, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt after the Passover sacrifice, Jesus knew that those were just hints. And then when they broke the covenant, he was going to come back with Jeremiah's words, a new covenant in the Holy Spirit, and the fulfillment not in the blood of an animal, but in the blood of Jesus himself, who is, uh, who is God. Again, Isaiah says, He surrendered himself to death and was counted among the wicked, and he shall take away the sins of many. The law and the prophets were all fulfilled in these sacred words of institution. And the early church joyfully received and celebrated this unimaginable gift. We know that the way it was referred to, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, was the breaking of the bread. It was the Mass. And if any of you are familiar with uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has got a really nice quote from St. Justin, who wrote around the year 150, so maybe 120 years or so after the institution of the Eucharist itself. St. Justin the martyr goes through the different parts of the Mass, and everything is the same exact structure we basically do today. So the early church from the very beginning joyfully received and celebrated this great gift. I'll just close with a, a phrase from the letter to Timothy. He says, this is the first Timothy, Timothy chapter 4. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, meaning Eucharistia in Greek, for then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And what this word of God and what this prayer of Jesus did was, again, give us the greatest of all Jesus' miracles. This total self-giving, this is what and this is what Jesus did, and it's actually who he is. It's one of the mysteries of Christ, is his actions and his person are one thing. You can't separate them. Maybe that's another reason why he didn't leave any, any writings. He didn't want to be maybe uh, simply relegated to a written word. He wanted to be a living word, which he is here Today, So that self-giving, what that means, that the self-giving Jesus showed us through giving us the Eucharist on the night of the Last Supper, means that it now has, the self-giving has gone all through history, and now we meet here Jesus himself. The same Jesus we just reflected on at the night of the Last Supper, the reality is no less present here than it was on that first Holy Thursday night. So let us thank our Lord for this great gift. Maybe ponder even better these words of institution of the Eucharist and know that this same Jesus is here with us now. So whatever you, every, ever, any special intention you have in your heart, any desire that is good, uh, you know that you have your friend Jesus here. Um, and may he continue to bless us with his presence and may we be open to the gift of his presence at every moment.